People love to ask Christians difficult questions in order to try to stump us, to try to cause us to defect on our faith, if you will, to discredit our faith in God. Such questions as, who created God? If God is all-powerful and created all things, why did he create evil? If God is a God of love, why is there suffering? Where did the sons of Adam get their wives? And on and on and on. We can go through a myriad of questions that people smugly ask and think that in their great intelligence, they have supplied reasons why not to trust the scriptures and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought it would be wonderful just to have a snappy answer, just a gotcha answer to a gotcha question that would just settle the unbelief? An answer that silences the opponent? An answer that can't be countered? An answer that reveals the truth? An answer that will bring stinging conviction? Well, the Jewish leaders tried to ask Jesus a gotcha question. So what is a gotcha question? A question that is intended to discredit Jesus and further to furnish the Jewish leaders with reasons to have Jesus killed. A gotcha question was not asked in sincerity, but was asked in order to try to get Jesus, if you will. So this morning, we're going to see that Jesus provides the perfect answer to a seemingly difficult question. It's a gotcha answer to a gotcha question. So let's begin with a background and review, since it's been some time since we've been in this text. Jesus, the day before, had entered the temple and Jerusalem with an unusual fanfare. The chief priests found the behavior to be disturbing and unacceptable. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, with crowds hailing him as the Son of David, a title that was reserved for the Messiah. Jesus then entered the temple and promptly overturned the tables of the money changers and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. He then rebuked the practice of buying and selling in the temple. And in addition, and even more unacceptable, he then invited the blind and the lame into the temple area itself and healed them. And then lastly, the children in the temple were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, a homage to be reserved for the Messiah. Matthew 21, 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The leaders of the temple were outraged by what they viewed as inappropriate behavior. And I am using the temple leaders as an important word this morning. The leaders confronted Jesus and expected that Jesus would put a stop to all this, verse 16. And they said to him, do you not hear what these are saying? 
However, Jesus did not put a stop to defend all that was taking place, as, for he defended it as appropriate behavior. Verse 16, And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? Jesus then left the temple on that note. Our text opens with the next day. Verse 23. And when he had entered the temple, the temple leaders challenged Jesus. It tells us in verse 23, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now again, I'm purposely using the term here, temple leaders, to emphasize the fact that these chief priests and elders had a responsibility. They were the rulers and the overseers of the temple worship. It was their duty, their responsibility, to see to it that temple worship was being performed in an appropriate manner. Their role is similar to our elders in our congregation. Our elders are responsible that what is taught from this pulpit is indeed in keeping with the truth of the word of God. Our elders have the responsibility to see that our worship is appropriate done, appropriately done in spirit and in truth. Thus, it's important to keep in mind that when Jesus overthrew the temple uh, tables and uh, banished the buyers and sellers from the temple, it was a clear implication of a rebuke to those very same Jewish leaders that were finding fault with him. He was saying, in essence, you should have never allowed this to take place. Now just imagine what your responsibility may be, and as elders, what you might do if in the middle of this service, someone was to walk into this building, come up front and throw this pulpit over on its side, and forcefully remove me from this building. What would you think about that? How would you view that individual? Might you be a bit perturbed, a bit upset, thinking that that's inappropriate, that that never should take place? One can see on one hand why the temple leaders would have been indignant. And so they ask a question. Verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? The question seems to be very reasonable and even responsible. It would seem as though the temple leaders are merely fulfilling their duty. But there's much more that's going on than meets the eye. The question is not as straightforward as it seems. The Pharisees were continuously trying to catch Jesus in these gotcha questions. Questions that were designed to trap Jesus, to get Jesus to say something that would cause that they could use against him. The reality is that the temple leaders were well aware of Jesus' claims. So their questions were not sincere. They were not seeking the truth. They were not desiring clarity or more information. 
They were seeking to be clever by raising their concerns in the form of a question rather than to bring a direct accusation against Jesus. That's an old ploy. Rather than directly addressing a concern, people will raise it in the form of a question, as though that they are without agenda, as though they're just seeking the truth. Oh, I just have this question. But, of course, lying behind it is a conviction of which they are trying to set forward. The question was not sincere. They knew it was not sincere. Jesus knew it was not sincere. sincere. But the people, the crowd, did not know that. They were unaware of the insincerity of the question. Therefore, Jesus' answer was very important. The question was, where did Jesus' authority come from? Verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus knew that they would not accept his answer. And so Jesus supplies them with the perfect answer. And we're going to look at why this was such a perfect answer. The answer is found in verse 24. If they will answer Jesus' question, then Jesus will answer their question. So Jesus answers their question with another question. Jesus now puts his attackers on the defensive. They could no longer look like seekers of truth. They would have to openly declare their beliefs or lack thereof, not only concerning Jesus, but also concerning John the Baptist. Notice verse 24. Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question, verse 25. The baptism of John. From where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Was John acting on his own authority? Was it from man? Or was John acting on God's authority? Was he baptizing because he was a prophet? Or was he baptizing because he was a charlatan? The leaders of the temple would have to openly declare their beliefs or lack thereof concerning not only Jesus, but John the Baptist. It was, again, the perfect question. So the leaders take time to huddle together and deliberate before answering the question, verse 25. And they discussed it among themselves. So what did they discuss? The the leaders quickly understood their dilemma. If they say that John's message was from heaven, that is from God, then it would legitimize Jesus. Notice the end of verse 25. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? To say that John the Baptist received authority from heaven was tantamount to saying that his message was to be believed and obeyed. If John the Baptist had God's approval, then what John the Baptist said was true. He was was a prophet. And John had openly and clearly declared himself concerning Jesus. For John the Baptist had said that when he baptized Jesus, that he heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was the John the Baptist who said that Jesus was the lamb of the 
the, war, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. It was John the Baptist who said that Jesus' teaching was from God. These Jewish leaders were all too familiar with John the Baptist's teaching. They knew the dilemma. If they say John the Baptist was a prophet, then Jesus is going to say, well then, believe what John the Baptist said concerning me. Therefore, to reject Jesus' authority, they would have to say that John the Baptist was not a true prophet. He did not come from God. However, that was problematic as well. It was widely believed that John the Baptist was a true prophet, verse 26. But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. John's ministry was almost universally accepted. It certainly was well accepted by the worshipers in the temple that day. It was generally held that John the Baptist was a prophet. So if these Jewish leaders are going to say that John the Baptist was not a prophet in order to discredit Jesus' authority, then they're going to have to deal with the people in the temple who believe that he is a prophet. Then all of a sudden they're going to expose themselves. They're going to show that they don't really believe when the people do believe. And then, of course, the people are going to question the legitimacy of the elders' rule and perhaps even have some kind of riot or rebellion on their hands. So the leader's seemingly shrewd response is that they do not know from where John the Baptist got his authority, verse 27. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. We don't know. We can't tell you. Shrewd? Because they do not acknowledge Jesus' authority, and they do not anger the crowd. But that was not an honest reply. They were not willing to declare themselves. So Jesus' response is, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Notice the end of verse 27. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. No, Jesus does not say, I don't know by what authority I do these things. But he likens his response to their response. You won't answer the question, I won't answer the question. It is not that they don't know, it's that they are unwilling to answer the question. It reveals that they already knew the answer to where Jesus' authority came from. They had the testimony of John the Baptist. He points that out. They had witnessed the works and miracles that Jesus had performed. They willfully willfully rejected the truth. They willfully rejected the truth. That's the story. That's the incident. But now, I want us to take some time and look at some applications, some lessons that we can apply from this particular portion of Scripture. Okay. Number one, Jesus has the authority as the Son of God 
to judge all things. This is a section dealing with Jesus' judgment. He had just thrown people out of the temple. He had overthrown the tables. He had declared that such behavior was unacceptable, this buying and selling in the temple. Okay, Who gave him that right? Well, God did. God did. He had the right to judge what was acceptable and unacceptable worship. That's what we should keep in mind. All right? Jesus is revealing that he had that right. That very night, that very day, Jesus had cursed a fig tree. Not publicly, but in the eyes of his disciples to demonstrate he had the authority to judge. He had the authority to destroy. He had the authority to decide. And so he cursed the fig tree, which we looked at last week. Now, he comes into the temple the next day and he's teaching. And it really just irritates the Jewish leaders to no end because they don't appreciate his teaching and what he's doing. But it teaches us that Jesus has the authority. What frustrated the Jewish leaders the most is the necessity on their part to relinquish their authority to Jesus. This is their bivouac. This is their court. This is their premise. This is their area of jurisdiction. They are in charge of the temple. Who is Jesus to come in and tell them that what they are doing is unacceptable? They balked at Jesus' authority over them. All under a guise. Let me say to you that most unbelief is the result of people balking at Jesus' authority over their lives. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Jesus has the right to tell you and me how to live. The word of God is binding upon all of us. And people want to deny Jesus' authority so that they can continue to go on and live any way they like. Unbelief likes to hide behind the premise and pretense of unknowability. Oh, I would believe if only I could see proof. I would believe if only I knew it could be shown that the Bible is the word of God or that Jesus really existed or that the resurrection actually took place. What we need to understand is that most often the questions concerning faith are not sincere. People aren't really looking for the answers. If they were looking for the answers, they could find the answers. They are raised as smoke screens. They are raised as curtains. 
For anyone who is objective and really wants to know the truth, there is more than adequate proof that the scriptures are indeed the word of God and that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. What I want you to understand this morning is that unbelief is not a matter of the mind, but a matter of the will. Let me say that again. Unbelief is not a matter of the mind, it's a matter of the will. The scriptures continually tell us from Romans chapter 1 and other places that people suppress the truth. They will not allow certain truth to be uh, entered into their personal court of law. I love that term, to suppress the truth, because uh, it is a legal term. And we all know how in our legal system that... uh, Defense attorneys try very hard to suppress certain evidence from coming into play. They don't want it to be heard. So uh, it is disallowed because perhaps it was obtained without a search warrant, or it was a confession that was made under duress, or, and there are other excuses that are given as to why this important, crucial matter of evidence should not be allowed to be entered into the court system in order to make a determ- determination of innocence or guilt. The scripture says that mankind suppresses, keeps evidence out concerning who Jesus is and what he has done. They suppress the truth. Unbelief is not a matter of the mind, it's a matter of the will, of an unwillingness to to accept the truth concerning Jesus. Why is that important? Answer, because people are accountable for rejecting Jesus' authority. Romans 3.19 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Every single person is going to be accountable before God on the day of judgment. No one is going to have an excuse. No one is going to be able to say, oh, I would have believed if only, if only somebody could have shown me the truth. If only... No. There is not going to be any defense on the day of judgment. They are without excuse. On the day of judgment, people will admit, important word, people will admit the truth concerning Jesus. Philippians 2.10 says that the name of Jesus, every knee of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every single created being, natural and supernatural, is going to bow at that day and admit that Jesus Christ is Lord. These temple leaders are going to bow and admit that Jesus Christ is Lord. And furthermore, they're going to have to admit that they knew it all along. They were just unwilling to submit to it. 
Jesus' answer is a perfect answer. Why? First, it shows us that we don't have to give a direct answer to every question that is asked of us. The scripture says, answer not a a fool in his folly, lest thou be like him. Some questions are nonsensical. Some questions are insincere. Some questions don't deserve an answer. Jesus answered the question, but he didn't answer it directly. We need to understand that some questions are insincere. They just lead us down a rabbit trail that isn't going to be particularly helpful. But he does answer the question. Okay? And he answers it in a powerful way with another question. And so why was it such a perfect answer? Because, number one, it silenced the opponents. They had nothing else that they could say. Now, this doesn't end what happened. There are going to be three parables that Jesus is going to now teach, uh, having gotten their attention, and he's going to address this issue. So this isn't all that Jesus says. But as we limit ourselves to this very small portion of the text, it silences the opponent. An answer that could not be countered. They, they, they weren't able to come up with a, an answer that would be acceptable other than, well, we don't know. And uh, they couldn't counter Jesus' logic. An answer that clearly reveals the truth. Okay? It clearly revealed the truth to everyone that was standing there. He said, remember, the, the leaders said, all these people hold that John the Baptist was a prophet. All these people knew what John the Baptist taught. Many of those people would have been baptized by John the Baptist. So Jesus reminds all of those people of John the Baptist and what John the Baptist had said about Jesus. And furthermore, He causes these Jewish leaders to reflect on what John the Baptist said. They had to call it to mind. They had to think through it. They had to reason. They talked among themselves. They discussed it. And I'm sure it was more than just the two seconds that it takes to read the passage. They thought this through. Well, what happens if we say he's John the Baptist? Well, one of them says, well, you know, know, if he says he's John the Baptist, you know what he's going to say. He's going to talk about what John the Baptist said. Somebody else says, well, what did John the Baptist say? Well, John the Baptist said that he's the son of God. John the Baptist said he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said he had a vision from heaven concerning this guy. And they're all rehearsing what John the Baptist said. It's an answer that brings stinging conviction. They knew. And they knew that Jesus knew. And so they hid behind saying that they didn't know. But they did know. 
They were just afraid to say it. Their conclusion was that John the Baptist wasn't from God. But they didn't want to say that. They wanted to hide from it. It's not true. It's an answer that is intended to teach us what judgment will be like. It's to see the authority of Jesus Christ. Okay? It is bigger than the confrontation of Jesus and these Jewish leaders. He's teaching before his death about the reality of a coming judgment that Jesus is going to oversee. And we need to understand the reality of that coming judgment. And three things that we need to understand. Number one, that all people will be defenseless before Jesus. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, man, I'd like to tell God a thing or two? Or when I stand before God, I'm going to let him know? Nobody is going to stand before Jesus Christ and instruct him or teach him. They are going to be silenced. No one will have a response when Jesus pronounces them guilty, when Jesus pronounces them condemned. They will not be able to argue the question. Not only will they be defenseless, but they will have to acknowledge the justice of the decision. They are going to be so completely undone that they are going to agree with Jesus about the justice of their own condemnation. They are going to have to admit the truth. They are going to admit their guilt and the just condemnation. There is no alternative. A reminder, right now, we live in a period of time in which Jesus is not condemning us, where it appears that life is going along just fine, but there's a day of judgment coming. And when that day of judgment comes, there is no excuse. And so, this morning, I would just say to you, as people come and raise their questions, we shouldn't be surprised. We don't have to answer every question. It's good to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We should seek to be able to answer their questions. But one day, every mouth will be silenced. Every question will be answered. Guilt will be revealed. The second application this morning is simply this. Have you submitted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you accepted his claim of authority over you?
And I submit to you, it's not a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the heart. Of people simply saying, I don't want to follow Christ. I don't want to do what the word of God tells me what to do. I want to live in sin. I want to live in rebellion. I want to live my own way. I don't want somebody having authority over me. He does have authority over you, whether you want it or not. He is the king. He is the son of God. And one day, every one of us will stand before Jesus Christ, having to acknowledge that authority. And, if we haven't acknowledged it in this life, to admit the justice of Jesus Christ in condemning us. So I just ask you this morning, if you have never, ever placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that today you recognize his authority, invite him to be the king, the Lord of your life, and accept the forgiveness that he so wonderfully obtained by dying on the cross and rising again. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the authority of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the reality of his death and his resurrection. We take great confidence in knowing that sin has been judged in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that for all those who place their faith and trust in him, that there is complete forgiveness. There's a removal of all the punishment due to sin, and there is a a new transformation of life that's taking place in our hearts and minds as we yield ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, not completely, but, oh Lord, there's been a change of heart and mind. There's a recognition of the joy of having a Savior, a Deliverer, a recognition that sin is hard and difficult, that the way of the transgressor is hard, a desire to be free from our our sin and to love and worship you more fully. So, Lord, I I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who, who has never submitted to your authority, who, in a willfulness of hiding behind unbelief, but in reality just not wanting to submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be that day in which they acknowledge your kingship, your lordship in their own lives. If there's anyone here this morning that would like to make that profession, I just ask that you quickly raise your hand that I may see it. I'll pray for you, not by name, but uh, I just want to be aware that you are making that decision this morning. Anyone here, raise that hand until I acknowledge it. All right, let's continue on. Our Father, uh, we just ask for your grace in our lives. Lord, give us boldness in our declaration of our faith in you. May we not be sidetracked. May we not be disturbed by the questions that others have. May we understand the insincerity that often hides behind these these very questions. Uh, Lord, uh, though we cannot silence, you can. And help us to realize that in the day of judgment, every knee will bow. Every mouth will be closed. Silence will reign except to admit and confess that Jesus Christ is indeed fact Lord. He is the Son of God, the Savior of all those who would have believed in him. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.